good morning. Man, it is so good to see you. If you don't know me, uh, get your life right. My name is Matt Darby. <laughs> no, I, I am uh, privileged. I'm honored to be one of the pastors here at New Beginnings, and I get the privilege of serving on our Gilmer campus as the teaching and campus pastor there. And uh, it's my joy uh, to do that and to be a part of the New Beginnings family. And so let me just say to you, on behalf of your Gilmer family, that we love you, and we're excited to be a part of this journey uh, with you. And I, I'm honored to get to share with you today. I, I'm very thankful uh, for our lead pastor, Pastor Todd Connitz, for the privilege of getting to stand here and open God's word with you. And uh, I would say this if he was in the room, but he's not, so I'm gonna say it for sure. And that is New Beginnings we are uh, blessed beyond measure to have Todd Connitz as our lead pastor. And here's why, because we have a pastor who has a passion for the word of God, who has a passion for the gospel advancing, and who has a passion for every single one of us to experience God's presence in a real way. And so I, I don't know about you, but I am thankful. And I would tell you, uh, every pastor and minister and staff member considers it a privilege to serve you and to serve the kingdom under his leadership. Would you just take a minute and help me thank Pastor Todd? And just, man, just love him. Love him. Love getting to be a part of this with him. Well, we are jumping back in uh, this morning into the book of Philippians. If you want to grab your Bible and head that way, we're going to jump back into this journey that we're taking through the book of Philippians. And we're going to be in it. It's a multi-series journey. We've kind of already done a, a, a section of this journey. There's more to come. Um, we're going to be in and out of it over the months ahead. And we really began some weeks back with a three-week series um, looking at the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 1 in a series that we called Healthy Church. And Healthy Church was a look at, we were trying to identify what are the marks, what are, what are the identifying marks that set, apart, uh, uh, set a church apart as healthy. And we, we noticed that uh, uh, a healthy church has uh, the offices that are given by God's word of saints or church members and deacons and elders, and all of those offices, all of, all of those roles function within their biblical bounds in full submission into the Lord and in humility toward one another. And that marks a healthy church. Uh, we looked at how the healthy church is marked by a shared gospel mission. We are marked by the reality that we have received the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been given the mission to share that gospel. And God who did the work of the gospel in us is going to see that work through to completion. And then we talked about how the mark of a healthy church is that it is a church that is spiritually maturing. Or it's becoming spiritually Mature, And the evidence of that is that it is abounding in love. And that word love was the word agape. It's that God kind of love that is growing in us and abounding through us. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to be uh, continuing in chapter one in a series we're calling To Live is Christ. To Live is Christ. And these three weeks are built around those Famous, well-known, powerful words that Paul says in Philippians 1.21 when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How does Paul come to have that perspective? Pastor Todd's going to uh, take us through those verses next week, but it's worth asking, how does someone gain the perspective that if I live, I live to Christ, and if I die, it's gain because I get Christ? How does, how does that happen? Um, and these verses that we're going to look at today, I think will begin 
to open our hearts to that being a reality in our life. We're going to look at verses 12 through 18 of, of chapter 1. And I think as we look to those verses, they're going to begin that process of, of opening our heart, opening our life uh, to uh, that being a reality for me to live as Christ and to die as gain because these verses are going to speak to what should be the passion of our lives. Um, we've entitled the message today, Gospel Passion. Gospel Passion. Well, what, what is passion? How do you measure passion, right? Our culture talks a lot about passion. How, there is no shortage of people who will come up to you and tell you how passionate they are about something. Oh, that's my passion. I'm super, I'm super passionate about it. You ever had somebody say that to you and you thought, I don't think you know what that means, right? I don't think you're as passionate about that uh, as you say you are. Why? Because uh, passion isn't measured in words. Passion is measured in the price I'm willing to pay to achieve the goal. That's, that's how you measure passion. Not in what I say I feel about it, but in the price I'm willing to pay to have it. Right? When my boys were little, they were passionate about this thing that I know was not of the Lord called Pokemon. Right? It wasn't from the Lord. It was from somewhere else. And uh, they were passionate about Pokemon. And they collected the cards. And they had this game that we, we put on our phones and we would drive around town and find um, real but not real like little cartoon Pokemons popping up. Did, did anybody else put that game on your phone? Right? Okay. Some of y'all are not children. You're adults, and that's against the rules because I'm telling you, that game was crazy, and people were nuts about it. Their daddy wasn't passionate about it, though. I can tell you that because I read a story about a guy who paid, now some of y'all are going to need to take medication after I say this. He paid $900,000 for one Pokemon card. Just one card. And I can tell you his mama didn't raise him right. That's just reality. His, mama, his mother did a terrible job. You know what I mean? And so we didn't have that kind of passion for Pokemon. One of the people that come to mind when I think about um, passion, willing to pay for whatever, willing to pay the price of whatever it costs to have the goal, uh, one of, I think, the most impressive athletes ever is Kobe Bryant, uh, just famous for his work ethic. And there's this story about a point guard named Jay Williams. You guys know this guy? He played for Duke. He was drafted by the Chicago Bulls. And um, Jay Williams goes to the Bulls, and on one of his first trips to Los Angeles for the Bulls to play the Lakers, Jay Williams, and this is in the Lakers' heyday, right? This is Shobi and, uh, Shobi? <laughs> Kobe and Shaq, and they are winning everything, right? They're winning titles. They're going crazy with how good they are, and Jay Williams goes, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get to the gym. It's a late-night game, but I'm going to get into their gym and into their court before any of them get there, and when they show up, they're going to see me working out on their floor. I'm going to send a message. But when Jay Williams got there at like 2 in the afternoon, he heard a ball bouncing. And he looked on the floor, and Kobe Bryant was already on the floor. And he was in a full-blown sweat because he had been working out for an hour. And Jay Williams goes, oh, okay, all right. And so then he puts in his workout. He's like, I'm going to put in a hard workout. I'm going to show him. And Jay's workout ends. He puts up four or 500 shots, and he's doing his drills. And he sits down, and he's pouring with sweat, and he looks over, and Kobe's still going. He goes in, he takes a shower, he gets in his street clothes, he comes out, Kobe's still on the floor. So they play the game that night, the Lakers destroy him, Kobe drops like 40 on him, and uh, he catches him after the game, he's like, Kobe, what is that? What does that work? And Kobe told him this, he said, I got wind that you were coming in, and I wanted to be sure you knew, nobody outworks me, and nobody wants it more than me. 
I was like, yeah, that's, Kobe had a passion, right? He was driven to be great. And you could measure that passion by what he was willing to pay to achieve the goal. So let me ask you, what are you passionate about? I don't, don't hear the question, what do you like doing? That's the wrong question. What do you enjoy? What are you passionate about? What are you willing to sacrifice for? Because the reality is you can't measure my passion for something based on what I tell you I feel about it, but based on what I'm willing to pay to have it. And when we enter into these verses this morning, we are entering into Paul's story in Philippians where he is paying a heavy price for his passion. And that is a passion for the gospel. So Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 12. If you're there, let me hear you say the Bible is true. Bless the Lord. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking uh, to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, would you illuminate your word into our hearts? Open us up, God, to hear your voice, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be lifted up, for your word to do what it does in us, rebukes, teaches, corrects, trains, makes us righteous. Would you do all of that? We, we want to just submit to the Holy Spirit. I pray on behalf of your church, God, that you would protect them from anything that originated in my heart and only deliver what was born from your, your will and from the throne room of heaven. So God, speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to remember something about these verses and about this letter to the church at Philippi, and that is this. When Paul wrote it, he was in prison. Paul was not free. He was in a Roman prison. He was considered an enemy of the empire of Rome. He was waiting for the judgment that was going to end his life. Paul's going to die in Rome. This is where he's going to die. But I want you to notice that in this prison, nowhere in the letter of, of uh, Philippians does Paul ask for the church to pray for his release. He doesn't ask for the church to pray for his release. And I think Paul could have made the case convincingly that his greatest impact for the kingdom and his deepest impact for the, for the mission of the gospel and the strengthening of the church would have been in him getting out of prison, not staying in it. But he never prays. He never says, church, pray that God will get me out of jail. He never asks for his circumstances to change. Instead, here's what he does. He talks about the joy he has in seeing God work right where he is. That is a gospel perspective, amen? He says at the end of verse 18, the last two words, all this is happening, here's what he says, I rejoice. I rejoice. What is that? What is that? What is that joy? Is Paul crazy, right? Is he taking one too many beatings? 
been knocked around a little bit, and now he's one of those guys that's just happy all the time? Is that what's happening? Is Paul lying? Is he lying? Is he wanting to present himself to the church as some sort of super saint whose faith is never weak and he never struggles or doubts? That's what we do, right? We, we kind of put on that church face to make sure nobody sees a chink in the armor. Is he lying? Or has Paul discovered something? Has Paul discovered something? Has he found a passion in something that has nothing to do with his circumstances? I think what Paul has discovered is this. I think he's discovered the joy of a life poured out for the gospel. He's discovered the joy in a life emptied out for the gospel. And he has experienced the gospel as so deeply transformative and so deeply satisfying and glorious that it has become his passion to see it advance. Have you experienced the gospel that way? That you have experienced it as so deeply transformative and so deeply satisfying that all you want is to see other people find what you found. That's where Paul is, right? He has made this unconquerable, unstoppable gospel the passion of his life. And here's what that does. It gets us to our first truth. Here's what happens. When the gospel is your passion, every obstacle becomes an opportunity. When the gospel is your passion, every obstacle becomes an opportunity. Look at what it says in verse 12 again. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, it's easy to miss the magnitude of that statement until you consider everything that has happened to Paul. Paul has had it rough. He has had beatings, floggings, whippings. He has been shipwrecked. He's known starvation. He's known thirst. He was bitten by a snake where the entire island of people just stared at him waiting for him to die. Right? He's been persecuted everywhere he goes. This isn't even his first time in prison. And now he's back in prison where he's been for two years awaiting the trial that will end his life. And he says everything, all of it, has served to advance the gospel. That word served is incredibly important. It's incredibly important. All of these things have served. Here's why it's so important. It reveals that the things that have happened to Paul while they may have been hard, and while they may have seemed unfair, and while they were out of his control, there was nothing he could do about it. While all of that was true, they were unfair and, and brutal and hard. They were under the sovereignty of God. They weren't meaningless sufferings. They were, they were serving a higher purpose as opportunities to display the gospel as the most satisfying reality in the universe. And this isn't the sermon, but I do want to tell you there is no hardship you will face ever that God has not strategically placed in your path under his sovereignty to display just how good he is. Do you believe that? Maybe you're in one of those. Maybe you walked into the building with one of those already. What I find interesting is Paul really wanted to go to Rome. He, he wanted to go to this important, powerful, influential city. He wanted to preach the gospel here, but I don't think prison was a part of the plan, right? He wanted to be there. I don't know that he wanted to be in prison. Wasn't part of the plan. I think it was that great uh, 
21st century philosopher, Mike Tyson, uh, who said, everybody's got a plan until what? Until you get punched in the face, <laughs> right? Think about Mike Tyson. Who doesn't like thinking about Mike Tyson, right? He had a great week, by the way. Did you see that video? Yeah, he had a stellar week. Um, Mike Tyson had 50 wins. 44 of them were by knockout. Here's what I want to tell you about all 44 of those dudes that Mike put to sleep. They got into the ring believing they had a plan. They had watched film of this guy fight. They knew his tendencies. They knew when the bell rung, he was going to come charging out of that corner, and they knew how they were going to respond. They had mapped out the first few rounds. The plan was perfect until Mike hit him with that right hand and put him to sleep. Mike had that kind of right hand that would make you take a nap in public. You know what I'm talking about? Just put you out. And that's what, that's what he would do. Listen, I don't think, I think Paul had a plan. And prison came along and interrupted that plan. And yet he's saying, in all of that, in all of the hardships, I rejoice because the gospel is advancing. Why is that true for Paul? Because Paul's freedom and his comfort and his liberty was never the point. The gospel was the point. The gospel was the point. And just in prepping this week and in praying this week, I have come under deep conviction that I had too often made the point of my life, my comfort, and my ease. And Paul, no, Paul said, my freedom's not the point. My comfort's not the point. My having, my protecting myself from outside influences so that nothing touches me, that's none of, what's important, what's the point is the gospel. And because it is advancing, his passion is being satisfied and his joy is being fulfilled. So how is the gospel advancing? He tells us in the next two verses. Look at verse 13 and 14. How is this happening? Paul says, everything that's happened has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul gives us two ways right there that the gospel is advancing through his suffering. One is through a courageous witness. The other is through a contagious courage. There is a courageous witness and then a contagious courage. Look at this courageous witness. Verse 13, Paul says, it's become known throughout the entire imperial guard and to all the rest that I'm in prison for Christ. Paul says, through my chains, through this imprisonment, people have come to know that what I'm going through is for Jesus. How would they know that? Because Paul lived with a courageous witness. Because he told them, right? And think about who he's talking about, the imperial guard. The Imperial Guard was a, was a part of the larger body called a Praetorian Guard, and their job was the personal bodyguards of the emperor. This was an elite force, specially trained uh, group of people, and they were in charge of guarding Paul. And listen, they, did, didn't, they didn't just watch him. They were physically chained to him. Paul was physically chained to a guard, and every six hours, a new guard came in and would chain himself to Paul with the order to kill him if he gets out of line, which meant this. Every six hours, Paul had a new guard to tell Jesus, to tell about Jesus. Every six hours, some new dude was coming in to get chained to this evangelist, and he knew for six hours, he was going to get Jesus bombs just dropped on him, which meant what? It meant Paul wasn't chained to them. They were chained to him. He had them right where he wanted them. 
Four guards a day would hear the glory of the gospel. And here's what you see. By the end of the letter, you see that Paul talks about encouraging the saints, and he talks about the believers in the household of Caesar. What's happened is, in this time, these, this imperial guard has gone out. The word now begins to spread. It gets into the Roman government, and even into Caesar's own house. People have come to know. Why? A courageous witness. There's a courageous witness. Not only that, you see a courage that is contagious, this contagious courage. Look at verse 14. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold. Everybody say the word bold. Bold to speak the word without fear. How many of you could just acknowledge with me that sharing the gospel at times is scary and challenging? Anybody else? Yeah. The rest of you liars go somewhere else. All right. It's hard, right? It's hard sometimes. It feels awkward. It can be scary to put yourself out there. And what Paul is saying is, because I've been willing to do that, there are brothers that are hearing about that, and their boldness is growing to share the word without fear. Paul is saying other believers, brothers who are looking at his suffering, seeing him preach the gospel in the midst of persecution are becoming courageous to preach that gospel. It's a contagious courage, which means that what Paul is going through isn't just for him. It isn't just about him. It's, it's happening to him, and it is serving to build up the body. Every trial you face, every hardship you encounter is not meaningless. It is meant to accomplish something. It is meant to accomplish two things. One, so that in it you would courageously declare the gospel. And two, that that gospel courage would become contagious to the believers around you as they see you walk through it in faith. How many of you can think back to your own spiritual journey and put your finger on someone that you watched go through something difficult, a terrible diagnosis, a death, the loss of it, and you watched them walk through it with gospel courage and something stirred up in you as a result of it. How many of you have people in your life like that? They just did, right? You saw them go through something hard and they did it with faith and with joy and they honored the Lord and they glorified God and they declared the gospel. And what happened to you? Something stirred. That's what's happening in this Paul's chains have become the instrument God is using to make people bold to speak the word. These chains aren't holding Paul back. They aren't keeping him from doing what God called him to do. They have become the means by which God is doing the work because Paul has a passion for the gospel, which turns every obstacle into an opportunity. Boy, the, the conviction I've come under, to be honest with you this week, is this. So many times when the circumstance changes, I allow that to become the excuse that I step away from obedience. The difficulty of a circumstance, the plan changing, something happening that just hurts me or derails me, and that becomes the excuse that I step away from obedience. Paul's chains have, the, the change in plans, the obstacle, they have become the means by which God is doing this work through him. I think it's interesting the, way, interesting the way Paul phrases this. He says that these brothers have become confident in the Lord 
by my imprisonment. They become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. It's important to note, Paul says, Paul does not say, excuse me, he doesn't say the brothers have become confident in me by my imprisonment. Or I've taught them how to be confident in themselves by my imprisonment. Or they become confident in their circumstances. No, Paul's courage and his passion for the gospel has served not to draw attention to himself, but to increase their view of God and to give glory to God. And their, their confidence in the Lord is what has grown. Takes us to the next truth, which is this. When the gospel is your passion, God's glory is your mission. When the gospel is your passion, God's glory is your mission. Look at verses 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. See, even then the church was struggling. <laughs> Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Paul had rivalries. Paul had rivalries. Paul had people who didn't like him. Paul had people who didn't like that he was in Rome. Paul didn't plant the church in Rome, and not everyone in that church liked Paul. Some people disagreed with him doctrinally. Some people just didn't like all the attention that he received, and Paul knew this. And what I find most surprising in these verses is the way Paul's celebration of the gospel overrides any heartbreak or frustration that he feels about their wrong motives. Isn't that powerful? Paul's celebration of the gospel overrides any heartbreak he feels at those who are trying to hurt him. That is a gospel perspective. God, grow that in us. Far more than being concerned with himself, far more than being concerned with uh, being well thought of, more than being concerned than, than being liked by everyone, Paul is concerned that Christ crucified is preached and that God is glorified. That's what he's concerned about. Listen, I, I think God wants, I know, God wants our motives to be pure, right? He wants there to be unity in the body. He doesn't want us doing things out of selfish ambition. He wants there to be purity in our motives, but those things come right behind. They are secondary to the purity of the message. It's the gospel above all. Paul wasn't concerned about who was advancing the gospel, only that it was advanced, which means this. He didn't care about getting credit. He didn't care about getting acclaim. God set us free from the need to get credit. How amazing would it be to live your life free from the shackle of needing to be recognized, of needing to get credit. I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to me too. That Paul, Paul wasn't looking to get credit. Why? Because when the gospel is your passion, your ego's gotta take a back seat. Your ego's gotta take a back seat. When the gospel is your passion, you no longer get to be the center of your own world. Listen, I don't think Paul liked that while he was suffering in prison, there were people demeaning his name to make a name for themselves. I don't think he liked that. 
But he doesn't see it as a personal affront. He sees it with this supernatural perspective. He sees the message that even though we are sinners separated from a holy God, that same holy God sent his son to deal with our sin so that through Jesus we might be restored back to him. He sees that. He celebrates that. And and Paul says, I look at this and I say that because the gospel is my passion and God's glory is my mission. I rejoice no matter what their motives I think Paul's able to get to this place because there is an assumption he lives with that the gospel is going to cost him something. Not that it costs him something to receive. That's free, right? It's it's turning to Jesus, seeing him as the solution for your sin, recognizing your need for a Savior, receiving the free gift of salvation and being born again. But Paul believed Jesus when Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, He must deny himself. Stop being the center of his own world. He must take up persecution, hardship, insult, injury, exclusion. He must take up his cross. And then he must follow me. I have spent too many years of my believing life translating that verse as if anyone wants to come after Jesus, they must indulge themselves. Take up their own desires and follow their dreams. God help us that that is how most modern day Christians use that. I'm (laughs) talking to me too. That is not what Jesus said. Paul knew the gospel was going to cost him something because Jesus said, you're going to deny everything that you want. You're going to take up the instrument of suffering to live a life of suffering. It's going to cost you. You're going to follow me. And yet in that, Paul had discovered that life is the well of my joy. Walking in that life causes me to experience something that no worldly pleasure can compete with that no circumstantial happiness can come close to touching. He said, I'm in prison, but I rejoice. You have that perspective. I think we get this beautiful look into Paul's heart, into this Christ-centered, gospel-focused, God's glory above all, heart and mind. Because I think Paul could have easily been bitter and angry. That's me, right? I'm a grudge holder. Just (laughs) Anybody else just want to confess? We'll start our own group, the self-help group, Grudge Holders Anonymous. (laughs) Right? When we aren't thought well of, when we're spoken poorly against, when someone questions our motives or we know someone has come to us with impure motives. Here Paul is languishing in prison. And listen, this is what's staggering. Fellow believers are adding insult to that injury. Some of you know this, but some of our deepest hurts can come from inside the church and not outside. Anybody in this room know that's true? Some of our deepest hurts. Some of you are hurt right now by something that has happened in a, in a former church or some, and, and you have a hurt 
because someone who should have known better sinned against you. Someone who had been redeemed by the same gospel that had redeemed you sinned against you. And when that happens, it hurts deeply. So what do we do? What did Paul do? How does that Christ-centered, gospel-loving, God-glorifying heart handle that pain? D.A. Carson said this about Paul's response to these people preaching out of envy and spite. He says, how does Paul handle this? Is he wounded? Doubtless he has feelings like everyone else, but he is a man of deep principle. And he perceives that whether by preachers like this or by preachers who align themselves with the apostle, the gospel is getting out. And that is more important than whether or not he himself achieves universal respect in the church. Paul's example is impressive and clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. And this next sentence is strong. Our own comfort our own bruised feelings, our own reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. If you are carrying a hurt from a fellow believer, it may be that God wants to do a forgiving work in you where you display that you have been so satisfied by the gospel that it is your joy to extend forgiveness and find healing and move forward and, as to, and together begin to advance the gospel. Maybe. I, I, don't, I have discovered I, I need the Holy Spirit to, to still do this work in my life. Anybody with me? I need the Holy Spirit to do this work in my life. There is still much room for Christ-centeredness to grow in me. There is so much room for a deep desire for God's glory to grow in me. There is so much room still for a deep passion and for the advance and the splendor of the gospel to grow in me. And there is in you as well. I was reading this week about someone who lived and died with this gospel passion. There's a missionary by the name of Adoniram Judson. I don't know if you've heard of him. Adoniram Judson, Adoniram Judson was one of the first Baptist missionaries ever commissioned onto the mission field. And he gave his life to missions in Burma, which is modern day Myanmar. Um, he was there for 40 years. But before he left on the mission field, Adoniram fell in love with a young lady named Anne Hasselton. Fell in love with this young lady named Anne, and he knew he wanted to marry Anne, but he also knew the hardships he was going to on the mission field that they would face together on mission. And so he wrote a letter to Anne's father asking for her hand in marriage, but he wrote this letter with those hardships in mind, with the reality of what it was going to cost them to go live this life in mind. I want you to listen to this letter he wrote and hear the gospel passion in it. Adoniram writes to his future father-in-law, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure 
in her subjugation to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior, for he then saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. I'm not sure how my father-in-law would have reacted if that's what I would have said (laughs) when I asked for Carrie's hand. But there's a a receiving that this is going to cost me something. And Adoniram and Ann Judson are worthy of our admiration this morning, but I am in awe with Ann's father. He had a gospel passion and a gospel perspective that made the gospel advancement his goal because Mr. Hasselton, he did consent to her getting married and Anne did marry Adoniram Johnson and he never saw her again in this world and she did die on the mission field. But because of their sacrifice, to this day, there are about 8,000 churches in this area and some 2.5 to 3 million believers So two things that we wrestle with and then we're going to respond. First one is this. Have you received the gospel? And when I ask you that question, I'm asking, have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? I'm not asking, are you a fan of Jesus? Do you think he's pretty cool? Do you like some of the stuff he said? I'm asking, have you surrendered the lordship of your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ and been born again? Well, man, how do I know that? I've been in church my whole life. There's going to be a lot of people in hell that spent their entire life in church. Here's how you know. You can put your finger on a moment where you met Jesus and he changed you. You were one thing, you met Christ, and you became a new thing. Now, you haven't been perfect from that day until today, but you've never been the same. Has that happened for you? Have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? If not, the moment we stand up and start worshiping, the moment Philip and the team sing, you gotta get out of your seat, come take one of these ministers by the hand and go, I need the gospel, I need to make Jesus the Lord of my life. For the rest of you, it's a wrestling with this. Do I have a passion for the gospel? Have I built a life of ease and comfort to make sure being obedient to Jesus doesn't really cost me anything? Maybe like me this morning for you, it's a time of repenting. It's a time of God. If it costs me everything, it's worth it. If it costs me everything, teach me in a fresh way, Lord, that if I want to come after you, I have to deny myself, take up a cross and follow. 
Maybe this morning, that's, that, you just need to come and get at this altar. You just need to pray, God, help me. Give me that, give me that gospel, eternal, Christ-centered, God's glory above all, heart and mind. Maybe that's the response. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to worship, and then I'm going to invite you to come. Holy Spirit, we just put ourselves under your care right now and in submission to your leading. And Father, I ask that you would move in our room, that you would move in our hearts, that the word you have spoken today, God, that we wouldn't push it aside out of fear, but we would embrace it in joy and we would walk in obedience to it. Would you bring salvation into this room? We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.